0: I'm Lana Ulrich, in-house counsel for the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. On June 27th, We the People host Jeffrey Rosen participated in a panel at the Aspen Institute's Ideas Festival. This conversation was recorded before Justice Kennedy announced his retirement from the Supreme Court. Next week on We the People, former Kennedy clerks will be joining us to discuss Justice Kennedy's legacy and the ways in which he shaped the court. In this episode, Ramesh Panaru of the National Review, Mimi Marziani of the Texas Civil Rights Project, Judge Nancy Gertner of Harvard Law School, and Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine Join Jeff for a wide-ranging discussion about the Supreme Court's latest term.
1: Hi, good morning, everybody. Thank you all for coming out this early. Super, super impressive. Um, Obviously, we have a lot to talk about here today. My name is Jamie Miller. I'm a vice president at the Aspen Institute, and I would like to welcome those of you um, for whom this is the first Aspen Ideas Festival event. For those of you who have been going at it for a few days, I'm even more impressed because you're up at 7.50 to come hear about everything that's going on on the Supreme Court. Um, I want to welcome Jeff Rosen, who's the president of the National Constitution Center and a a dear friend of the Aspen Institute and of the Ideas Festival. We are in good hands with him. We have some excellent panelists uh, to weigh in on what's been going on the past few weeks and the past few days. And even possibly in the next hour. (laughs) So thank you, Jeff. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Enjoy.
2: Thank you so much, Jamie. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. You were wise to get up at 7.40 to hear about the (laughs) Supreme Court, because it is impossible to imagine a more dramatic and important time to talk about the Supreme Court during our discussion this morning, the court will issue its last decisions of the term, including one involving union fees, and I'm giving you a pass from the usual injunction against checking your cell phones. If the case comes down soon after 8 a.m., call it out. Tell us what happened, and we will analyze it in real time.
3: There's got to be someone out there who's a SCOTUS blog Absolutely. follower. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is also a day, although... Uh, uh, anything is possible where rumors are rife that uh, Justice Kennedy could choose to retire uh, if he chooses to do so, and it's the end of the term. And uh, that <laughs> decision, if it comes and when it comes, would fundamentally transform the Constitution and the court more dramatically than at any time uh, that any of us have been writing about the court. And then we just have this astonishing series of recent decisions involving the most important questions in American <laughs> life, the Travel ban, abortion clinics, the future of digital privacy, partisan gerrymandering, religious freedom in the Masterpiece Cake case, taxes online. These cases are uh, fundamentally affecting who we are as a society. And our job this morning, in the brief time we have, is to help you understand them and to understand them ourselves in constitutional, not political terms. The only homework for this class is set aside your political views. In other words, don't ask, do you think the travel ban is a terrible idea? But ask, do you think the Constitution and the laws allow or prohibit it? And if you approach each of the decisions we're talking about in those terms, you may come up with some cases in which your political and constitutional uh, views diverge. And you think the travel ban is in a liberal monstrosity, but the Constitution allows it. Or it's great for national security, but the Constitution prohibits it. And that's what the justices are trying to do, and that's what we're going to try to do today. I'm going to start off, I'm just going to ask this extraordinarily accomplished panel uh, obvious questions about the cases and ask them to share their thoughts and help us understand them. Uh, So first I'm going to briefly introduce our magnificent panel judge, Nancy Gertner, is senior lecturer at Harvard Law School and uh, was uh, an extraordinarily distinguished federal judge and one of America's leading civil libertarians. Mimi Marziani is adjunct professor of law at the University of Texas and president of the Texas Civil Rights Project. Emily Bazelon is a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine and the Truman Capote Fellow at Yale Law School. And Ramesh Panuru is senior editor for National Review, columnist for Bloomberg View, visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and senior fellow at the National Review Institute. You know, I really usually need my constitutional (laughs) reading glasses. I can't... It's just the constitutional spirit allowed me to do that uh, unaided.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, please join
2: me in thanking our panelists. All right, just to be provocative or to get things going, I'm going to offer the following thesis. This is not a term in which five conservatives and four liberals repeatedly diverged on ideological grounds. That happened in some of the high-profile cases, most notably the travel ban, the abortion clinic case yesterday, the federal arbitration case, and some other significant ones. But more surprising and more interesting were the cases that did not divide along predictable ideological grounds. In particular, they showed Chief Justice Roberts' success in persuading his liberal and conservative colleagues to converge around narrow, nearly unanimous decisions that avoided broad constitutional rulings in order to achieve consensus. And those included the unanimous partisan gerrymandering case, which the court punted on technical grounds, the Masterpiece Cake case, which everyone thought was gonna be five to four, but was uh, not and avoided the constitutional uh, question. Uh, the, the tax case, which had an unexpected uh, ideological valence, the sports betting case, which was 7-2, to and so forth. So the hypothesis for our uh, panelists is this was the term where Chief Justice Roberts had surprising success in uh, working with Justices Breyer and Kagan, the pragmatic liberals, to achieve narrow uh, technical rulings over the strenuous dissents, in many cases, of Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor. Uh, Judge Gertner, discuss.
4: (laughs) I feel like saying from Saturday Night Live, talk amongst yourselves. Topic Supreme Court. And then we can just relax. Um, uh, uh, Yes, there are cases in which Roberts, Breyer, and Kagan have been able to fashion uh, a consensus. You try to identify which are those cases. So it's not the cases which are the real fault lines in the polity, not real, the real fault lines in that, that they have to deal with, namely uh, the travel ban, the abortion cases, um, and they are coming together for the purposes of ducking. This is not a major constitutional advance, in my view. I mean, the Masterpiece Cake case, you came together for the purposes of remanding the case for fact-finding so that we don't have to look at it. It's coming together for the purpose of kicking the can down the road, which has significance if today is the day that Kennedy retires. He, one caveat to that is that uh, Chief Justice Roberts, there's a very interesting jurisprudence coming out of the court that has to do with electronic privacy. And it was believed that when the first GPS device came up, the Jones case, when there was a GPS device on a car without probable cause, which enabled the law enforcement to find out where someone was in real time, that the, that the court was appalled at the, question, at the answer to the question, you mean they could do it to one of us? And it's, you know, it was like, oh, yes, they could, in which case it sort of changed the frame. And I think the GPS case, Jones, led to the cell tower case in which the, the court was saying that the, the information gleaned from cell towers of your location likewise requires a warrant. That was a big decision, which they all came together on, or mostly all came together on, and is, I think it's, uh, I hate to put it this way, but it's middle-class privacy, and that's involved, and and they all resonate with that. But otherwise, it is practically coming together for the purposes of avoiding decision-making.
2: On the Supreme Court, I think they go uh, in order, like Ramesh I would also, come next, uh, right, right. based on seniority. So.
4: Age, um, you're doing this by age, no, no, Jeff.
2: No. Your, your thoughts on the, is, is this, no, not, not, no, 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 this is purely a hierarchy <laughs> in terms of where you're sitting, that's what determines everything. Uh, is it right that it's a Roberts 7-2 to court rather than a 5-4 to court? And since Nancy mentioned the Carpenter case, there's an interesting 5-4 to decision where the Uh, Four liberals joined by Roberts say we do have an expectation of privacy in the whole of our movements for a month. The four conservatives say, no, you need a property rights violation before you can trigger the warrant requirement. And Judge Gorsuch says if you had a property right in your uh, cell phone data, the case might have come out uh, differently. Uh, Who is right there? Mm.
5: Um, Let me – first, I wanted to, to comment a little bit. I think that Your point about the justices coming together to duck the issues is is right and an important one. Um, Chief Justice Roberts is clearly uh, looking after the institutional interests of the court and the image of the court in trying to build this kind of artificial unity uh, in some of these cases. But I wonder whether in the end, um, over time, it's going to create the impression that the court just isn't doing its job and that it will actually backfire in that way. I think it's also... um, you know sort of it's kind of an obvious point I suppose but but it is telling that it's the hot button issues where you get the five to four and it's some of these more technical questions um, where uh, you know we, we talked to one of them would be the um, uh, the state taxing authority case uh, a week ago, Wayfair, um, where you get a scrambled version of alliances the when it's sort of when it 's easier for the justices to just look at the law and they 're not coming at it with these strong political priors, I think you're going to have more of these scrambled um, rulings. but my suspicion is that the union case, for example, today is going to be another five four totally predictable conservative versus liberal uh, fight i you know on the uh, on the question of how the uh, on whether the carpenter case came out right I suppose that's one of the areas where I don't have strong views myself, and I look at the both. I look at the arguments and think, yeah, there's some decent points on both sides. I think that the 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 I think what the court adopted was a kind of equilibrium adjustment approach, where it, you're going to respond to changes in technology by trying to reset the balance, um, so that if technology seems to threaten privacy, you have a doctrinal change that pulls back on that. That I think is the right approach. How you actually apply it in a
2: particular case, I think, is going to be extremely tricky. Two really interesting points. Decent arguments on both sides in in many of these cases and is the court doing its job by ducking the cases that everyone wants answered? Uh, Mimi, I think you're next.
6: So uh, I'm going to agree and disagree with your statement Um, and I think just looking at the major voting rights cases, you can find evidence on both sides. On the one hand, we thought this could be a blockbuster term um, to, to get a new decision on partisan gerrymandering there, to your point, the judges reached consensus to duck what has been a very hard issue for the court for decades. Um, then again, the other two major voting rights cases, you were five to four decisions and you saw deep, deep divisions among the court that I would submit does say a lot about their view of political power, but also says a lot about their view on racial discrimination. Uh, the one case coming out of Ohio involves uh, an Ohio law that allows it uh, to purge people off of the voting rolls when they haven't voted for a while. And the actual issue in the case is kind of a close statutory call. And um, it was very technical. And actually, I brought my phone to just read you a line to underscore how technical it was. Alito's majority decision actually said, I just I love this line. Wait for this. There's no reason to create an exception to a prohibition unless the prohibition would otherwise forbid what the exception allows. (laughs) So that's all you need to know about the statutory construction argument. Let's put that aside. (laughs) But, you know, the important thing about that case is that the majority completely ignores the 30,000-foot voting rights case, which voting rights issue, which is, you know, can our voting rights have an expiration date, like, like, like milk in the refrigerator? And they completely ignore the real-world effects with so soda manure then hammers home, particularly the fact that, as applied, this law leads to um, you know, the city of Cincinnati having 10 percent of its black residents kicked off the rolls, but four percent of the white suburban residents. And you know, the, the majority was not willing to grapple with that. Similarly, the racial gerrymandering case coming out of my home state of Texas also showed this deep division and um, there's a lot of technical discussion there also about whether the case was ripe to be heard and um, whether the district court kind of appropriately shifted uh, or inappropriately shifted burdens. But if you kind of step away from those more technical questions, again, at its core, the, the issue is, you know, look, there was evidence in the record that Texas lawmakers absolutely considered race in drawing the lines, and I think that the question before the court was, how concerned should we be about that? And the majority basically said, you know, not that concerned. What do you got? It just announced that it will labor. OK, labor, tell us. Major, Can you major
2: blow to organized labor. So the oh. court says public unions may not charge fees to non members. It, was it 5 4? Four? Four?
3: Can you tell? Sorry to be quizzing you. <laughs>
2: Someone go to supremecourt.gov and then read the decision and tell us what she's
6: think. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like an outline. <laughs>
2: yeah. what, what, we, what, we, what we need to know is who wrote the majority and who wrote the dissent.
4: You have an assignment yeah, <laughs> report back. As, you you are, as you're in the front uh, row, a, that's
2: as, that's as you're looking, Emily, yeah, uh, Mimi put uh, the voting rights cases on the table, and there was the partisan gerrymandering case as well. And tell the audience what to think about the court's approach to these voting rights cases.
3: Um, so I respectfully disagree with your 7-2, two nine zero thesis. I think this is a deeply divided court. 5-4, to four, the liberals are losing. There was not a single important decision this term where Kennedy was a fifth vote for the liberals. And so what you saw were compromises born out of desperate necessity in the... Um, gay rights, masterpiece, cake shop case, and even more so in the partisan gerrymandering case. Um, My own feeling about the court, and it's been true since Citizens United, the campaign finance case, is the most important thing the court does are its interventions, or lack thereof, into our democratic process. Does it want to make the democratic process more fair? Does it want to make it easier for more people to vote? Or is it willing to go along with various voting restrictions, in particular ones that, as Mimi laid out, have a racially discriminatory component? In this term, the court either went along with um, restrictions and that had a, racial, um, a racially disparate outcome, in the Texas and um, Ohio cases, or it completely punted. And the 9-0 um, ruling in the Wisconsin and Maryland was 9 2 mm-hmm. partisan gerrymandering cases, Are it's just smoke. What really happened in those cases was that Justice Kennedy seemed to be teed up to finally say... There is a cause of action, a way to sue when a state does extreme partisan gerrymandering, and we can see they did it intentionally, because that was completely on the record in Maryland and almost on the record in Wisconsin. Um, you know, 12 years ago, uh, Justice Kennedy had said, I'm waiting for someone to give me a good test and tell me how I can do this in a responsible way lots and lots of political scientists and mathematicians got together and they came up with some pretty good tests especially for dealing with the outliers right? like Wisconsin and Maryland where you have a huge imbalance one party is really taking advantage Kennedy faced with this new body of evidence says like sorry, backs away, we don't know exactly what happened because he didn't write a word in the end but you do have this in my view very telling um, concurrence by Justice Kagan that for Not five justices sign. Justice Kagan says to the lower to the parties, you can come back. This isn't a big deal. We're remanding, just change your factual evidence slightly, just tweak it um, and make it about an individual right in a particular district, and everything will be fine. But if Justice Kennedy doesn't sign on to that line of reasoning, then it's not fine. And if Justice Kennedy is not there, after this term or the following one, it is even more not fine for that point of view. So, you know, in my view, this 5-4 to division was somewhat masked this term, but is going to come back in full force.
2: Thank you for that powerful and clear counter-argument. Emily says these are compromises born of desperation by Justices Breyer and Kagan, and they won't even have an incentive to do that if... Justice Kennedy retires. All right, we've been burying the lead and haven't yet talked about the travel ban case. Let's use that as a specific test of this theory about whether it's ideology or uh, something else going on, and I'll just describe the (laughs) positions of the majority and the two blocks of dissenters, and our panelists will discuss. Five justices, led by Chief Justice Roberts, uphold President Trump's travel ban they reject the argument that the ban violates federal law. There are two relevant federal laws. One says that the president can exclude whomever he wants based on group identity if that group threatens national security. Another law says that the president can't discriminate on the basis of religion in making immigration decisions. And these five justices said the president gets deference in national security and he only can't discriminate on the basis of religion in issuing visas, but he can uh, draw distinctions um, when uh, deciding which group poses a threat. And then there was a... uh, And and the significant thing is that the two liberal justices agreed with that, that there was no uh, federal uh, statutory ban to the travel ban, and even Justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg didn't press that point. So the entire court didn't focus on the possibility that the ban violated federal law. Instead, the dispute was about whether it violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, which says Congress shall make no law establishing religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Five justices, uh, led by Chief Justice Roberts, said, no, this was not religious discrimination because Congress picked these countries and found that they were dangerous. Not all of them are Muslim countries, and the president gets huge deference when it comes to immigration. Two justices, Kagan and Breyer, said, We think there might be evidence of religious discrimination, but we're not sure. We're concerned that the waiver provisions are not being administered in an even-handed way, which would suggest that the national security reason is a pretext, and therefore we want to send it back to the lower courts to see how this is actually being administered. And two justices, led by Justice Sonia Sotomayor, wrote one of the most fiery and... uh, passionate uh, dissenting opinions in recent memory saying that this is an example of, uh, of uh, race-based discrimination and religious-based discrimination that will stand in ignominy along with the Korematsu decision, which upheld the Japanese internment. The court formally overturned that decision in the majority opinion, but Justice Sotomayor said that was a pallid concession since this, these stereotypes on the basis of religion unsupported by empirical evidence are just as harmful as those in Korematsu and she, and she also quoted extensively from the president's tweets, uh, which uh, she said were infected at every stage with religious bias. So I just tried to describe the three arguments Nancy uh, discussed.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, there, there's so much to unpack. On the one hand, the decisions of the judges around the country on the travel ban cases were initially surprising. And they were surprising because this, in fact, is an area in which presidents have plenary power, which is to say, broad questions of exclusion and admission into the country. Um, And all of the injunctions were weighing, where a judge had to weigh what was the likelihood of success, what was the public interest. And usually when a judge has wiggle room like that, there is massive deference to the executive. And what was interesting to me, and I wrote about this, was that, in fact, you didn't see that. And I wondered, from the lower court decisions, whether we were seeing sort of a new regime called judging in a time of Trump. When you defer to the executive because of the assumption that there has been a regular process, that agencies have looked at it, people have looked at facts, and it's been done in good faith in the area of the president's expertise, and that all of a sudden coming out of these decisions was a sense that this is a different world that deference may make sense before, but it doesn 't make sense now. The five uh, justices who who decided the travel ban case represented a return to the old deference at all costs view here this and, and effectively ignored the the things that the president had said on the campaign trail effectively ignored the the, the provenance of the travel ban, which is to say the first one was so badly drawn uh, that that green card holders were excluded from the United States, a, a category as to which we had absolutely no authority to do. And it essentially took him how many months to come up with a rationale, and in other parts of the law, if, it, if, the, if the rationale seems to be a pretext, you say that. Instead, the five said, really, return to very old-fashioned views, The president has plenary authority. This is good enough. What they said about why they were doing what they were doing was was good enough. Then, along the lines of what you were just saying, which is that Breyer and Kagan tried to masterpiece Cake It
2: Yes. For yeah, want right. of a better... Masterpiece yes.
4: cake it. Yeah, masterpiece is a new term. Right. It's a verb. Explain it. A masterpiece cake was... Um, we're not going to address whether this was, in fact, religious discrimination to refuse to make a cake... Uh, uh, sorry. Discrimination against same-sex couples to refuse to make a cake uh, in a same-sex marriage. We're going to essentially remand it for a fuller factual record of who said what. Interestingly enough, a fuller factual record about intend to discriminate against the, the, uh, the baker whose religious freedom was at stake. Um, actually, when I heard about Masterpiece Case, I thought, oh, that would be interesting. That may suggest that the travel ban mm-hmm. would go in that direction as yes. well. This is a court looking under, you know, peeking under the coverlet to see whether there was intentional discrimination, even if the act was on its face fair, and neutral. So Kagan and Breyer were trying to masterpiece theater, masterpiece Kagan, and it didn't work. You know, let's remand it for a fuller development of the record, and then Kagan and then uh, Sotomayor and, and Ginsburg were saying, you have to call it for what it is. Uh, sure, this is apparently neutral on its face, and maybe there's some time in the future there might be a rationale that would make sense, um, where you, that would actually be keyed to security conditions in particular countries. But the, the evolution of this and the comments that were made about it make it clear that this was pretextual. Um, she points to Korematsu. Other people have pointed to, by the way, other cases on which the court relied, the five relied, cited to earlier cases, Chinese exclusion cases, to the cases... In which, in fact, immigration was regularly used to exclude people um, that would, you know, taint the stock of Americans. Chinese, the Chinese were were the notable ones. So um, there is a text and a subtext to these cases, and um, uh, you know. And at this point, I'm, and Ken, and well, one more thing, Kennedy yes. wrote. I have to re- read this because. Uh, it is the most um, on, the, on the, the lamest decision picture, yeah. I have ever read yeah. in, in my life. Yeah. It goes. I
6: picture a dog that, with the tail between the
4: legs. Right. It said, there are numerous instances in which the statements and acts of government officials are not subject to judicial scrutiny or intervention. That doesn't mean that these officials are free to disregard the Constitution and the rights it co- proclaims. What he's saying is, we judges can affect only some part of official acts and evaluate them in terms of their constitutionality, but, but president, with respect to the, the stuff that we cannot intervene, you should abide by the Constitution. That's a horrifying statement in my view, because it essentially carves out an area of pre, uh, presidential dis- discretion as to which there would be no review. And he's begging the president to follow those norms.
2: Powerful words. Ramesh Nancy said a bunch of uh, strong things, including uh, this is uh, inconsistent in some ways with the Masterpiece Cake case where the conservatives were willing to look at evidence of religious discrimination in a Colorado administrative proceeding, and here they were willing to ignore flagrant and flamboyant Tweets And she finds Justice Kennedy's justification lame. Is, um, is this uh, uh, an easy case under national security precedents? And were the conservatives and even the two liberals just doing what their predecessors have done every time before? Or were they ignoring transparent evidence of discrimination mm-hmm. and acting inconsistently? So um, I think that the
5: reason they didn't sort of peek under the hood is precisely because they, they had reached the conclusion that this is a national security area and the president deserves deference. That's what governed the, the way they looked at that question. Um, you know, I think one thing that's kind of interesting in the case, uh, it, and it points to some of the um, irregularity of it, uh, is that. Chief Justice Roberts sort of goes out of his way. He has this, I think, legally unnecessary lecture where he says, you know, presidents have in the past spoken up in favor of religious tolerance and, uh, oh, wow. uh, and religious freedom, uh, and I don't see how you can read that passage except as an attempt to rebuke President Trump, and, it, and that was, of course, entirely lost on President Trump, <laughs> whose, uh, whose uh, own reaction to the case was in, instead... Um, um, triumphalist uh, I think it's interesting the extent to which the statutory part of this case kind of fell out um, as, you, as you suggested that there was I think a tacit agreement that Congress just has given the president enormous authority uh, in the statutes and you know maybe and as with a lot of places where the president has been granted a lot of authority by Congress maybe that wasn't such a hot idea um, But but there, but that's what it is uh, I think that I, I, I bought the the basic analysis of the majority on the establishment point, but I thought that Kagan and Breyer were had an unanswered case about the the pretextual nature of the of the so called case by case individual review and waiver process
4: because this was a preliminary injunction they were hearing. Mm-hmm. These are cases that yeah. which there was essentially no record. A very, very spotty record. And, and roberts he just has a footnote um,
5: where he just says, it's kind of like, you know, he's sort of plugging his ears in this at this point, and he just says, yeah, that just seems like a bunch of anecdotes. The only evidence that, he's not providing any counter-evidence, but the only evidence that's been presented in this case is that this is in fact a pretext. This isn't a serious process of individualized review. and And he just decides to ignore it for... You know, I, I think in an in 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 actually, and I don't say this very often about Chief Justice Roberts in a, in a flip way, I
2: thought. mean, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's wonderful that the audience is hearing this wonky, engaged discussion. <laughs> <laughs> of, this is the way you need to read these decisions. And remember, after the class, you have to actually read the travel ban yeah. decision, the majority, the and the dissent. Well, you get your homework. Uh, after us, you're not going to show up. So. <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, I bet that I think I know the question that many of you are asking which is, is America doomed? Uh, (laughs) And will the Supreme Court, if the president does something really transgressive, stand up to him? I know you're thinking that because that's what everyone has been emailing me and probably all all of us over the past couple days. So, Mimi, based on your reading of the travel (laughs) ban case, uh, is America doomed? And more specifically, can you imagine this court and these justices standing up to the president if he were to do something really transgressive, like throw a journalist in jail. we have
4: something stronger than... Yeah, I know, I know.
2: <laughs> yes, it's already 9 o'clock somewhere, so... <laughs> and it's Aspen. What's um, the so audience?
6: Excellent think? question. So three thoughts I'll share in response to that. I mean, n- number one, um, the travel ban case has been billed as a loss for the progressive minority, um, for folks who, um, you know, want to stand up against... I'm going to try not to get too political, but I would say tyranny in the face of law. But I think it's really important to remember what happened before this case came to the Supreme Court. This was the third iteration mm-hmm. of the travel ban. And so I think that when you look at the overall litigation, I don't actually think that this was a loss because what you actually saw through the course of litigation, through the course of public pressure, was a, um, a an executive who was forced to change his, his policy-making in this area. He was not untouchable here. He was forced to capitulate. And that, I think, adds uh, brings me to the, the second point, which is, um, as many of you know, my organization, the Texas Civil Rights Project, has been on the front line of the family separation issue. And so you know, I've been bombarded with questions about what the travel ban case means for litigation. Um, we, we have litigation in front of an international tribunal, some litigation domestically around the family separation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I think that it's, um, you know, somewhat unclear, but I do think that given the fact that these early district court decisions around the travel ban, around the first iteration of the travel ban, those are still standing for the most part, you know, And, 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 and those were vindicated, I think, by forcing the executive to go back and issue not just one more, but another iteration of this. And so we saw just last night, I think around 11 p.m., uh, there was an injunction issued from a court, district court in California against the family separation policy. And it is, uh, it is worth reading. Uh, I'll note just two striking things in light of your question. One, the the judge goes out of her way to detail the horrors that these families have been through, both in the separation process and then in this bureaucratic um, maze of of trying to reunite. And then she issues a very broad injunction that, that actually goes past what was originally presented in the case, forcing all deportations to stop forcing families to be reunited within 14 days for young kids, 30 days for all kids. And so um, this was issued after the travel ban case, and clearly this particular judge did not feel cowed in any way. Um, the very last thing I'll just note about the travel ban, going back to the point I was saying before, again, this is when, where you're seeing Justice Sotomayor um, really, take a stand about the racial implications of, of these decisions, and, and I would note that she's a very strong dissent in the travel ban case, and similarly in the racial gerrymandering case out of Texas, she says, and this is again deal with you know this is very lawyerly, but rather than I respectfully dissent, she says I dissent, um, and and that is significant, and I think that. you can see some parallels between those two dissents that are important to think about.
2: Emily, very interested in your thoughts about whether you could imagine the Supreme Court standing up to President Trump in a future case, and if so, what that would be. And Mimi introduces this question of uh, district court universal injunctions, which was at issue in the (laughs) travel ban case. Justice Clarence Thomas Thomas writes a concurrence saying district courts should not be able on their own to stop an entire national policy Thoughts, and, and if the court did stand up to President Trump, what would it involve?
3: Right. I mean, the alarming aspect of the travel ban case is this idea that the justices were willing to basically look away from all of this evidence of, racial anim- of, you know, of anti-Muslim animus and... Um, move on to the happy facially neutral text of the eventual third version travel ban that looks fine if you're just reading that particular piece of paper. So there isn't a whole lot there to show us what would trigger a more um, combative or at least a more stand-up to the president court. And I don't think we're doomed because of this decision. It doesn't suggest that that future scenario doesn't exist. Um, you know, the Supreme Court justices are independent. Um, only one of them thus far was appointed by Trump. You could imagine a scenario, a more extreme one. But what I wonder about is the kind of shifting norms and politics here. So you wisely asked us not to talk about politics, but Trump understands this case only through a political lens. It's a victory for him. It will embolden him. The justices have other considerations about the enormous power presidents have in the immigration context to consider, But there's no way that that doesn't matter in terms of what Trump does next. Um, It will come up in the family separation litigation in terms of the arguments that the Justice Department makes. And we've already seen some quite unusual arguments in a variety of contexts from the Solicitor General's office this term, kind of separate topic, right? Uh, And so I do worry about that and wonder about it. You know, I don't, the idea that we should have some new norm of judging in the age of Trump seems wrong to me in the sense that we need our other institutions and branches to maintain their norms. We can't all suddenly start doing our jobs differently because the president does his differently. On the other hand, when you're faced with clear evidence of anti Muslim bias in the record, to ignore it is to give it a pass, especially given this president's proclivities. So um, I really do wonder about that. I also am skeptical about universal injunctions from district court judges, along with Clarence Thomas. Um, to switch to your other question, it just seems kind of crazy that one judge um, can, on his own, change a whole policy for the entire country, as opposed to like his district or even you know his circuit. Although I. Not sure why it would be, what the theory would be behind the circuit (laughs) versus the district. That is, like, a lot of power, and I'm not sure um, what I think about it. It is also true that those decisions are immediately reviewable, so it's not as if other higher courts can't immediately lift those injunctions. But um, it did, in this case, have uh, real consequences for the government.
2: Great.
6: Yeah.
2: Uh, you must. Uh, yes. I Have you issued a, a, a universal order? I haven't, but I <laughs> regret you that you I had. No, no, <laughs> <Yeah.
3: laughs> yeah. yeah. against um, the federal <laughs> sentencing guidelines right. of so the, the whole country.
4: The rationale for an individual judge doing a nationwide. Uh, injunction is if the case is litigated, the facts are litigated, and it's a nationwide policy, then it makes sense to do that rather than to break it up in pieces around the country. So a judge issues a nationwide injunction with respect to a nationwide policy it then goes up the ranks and the court does with it what it what it will but otherwise you would have a a Mm non-national system it doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense the chaos is in the other side but I just want to your point about the travel ban cases people should understand that there's a difference between the announcement of the legitimacy of the travel ban and then the question of how it is applied Mm-hmm. Um, there's a difference between the president's plenary power over broad categories in, um, in in immigration and how that actually plays out on the border. So that's why you could have the Supreme Court travel ban case and the case that we were just talking about of an individual judge who said, this policy with respect to asylum seekers, it, it should be enjoined. I think the issue here is going to be um, uh, it's not only what the president does, but it's also what he enables. And that and what he is enabling is what we're seeing on the border.
2: One more round from the remaining uh, justices and then we'll have just a, one or two questions. Uh, R- Ramesh, uh, what impact did Justice Gorsuch have and how would the court change if Justice Kennedy retires?
5: Um, so if we're gonna be like <laughs> a small, justices, A small question. That means that when they ask questions, we can throw them off balance, right? We can interrupt Absolutely. them. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, yes, Council Gorsuch, you know, we've had several decades uh, of Republican appointees who disappointed the uh, president who appointed them, disappointed the political coalition behind the Republicans, uh, and conservatives have gotten better at selecting people who won't disappoint them uh, because of that experience. Much and, better. And Gorsuch is and voting – Gorsuch is voting the way that uh, you know Republicans and conservatives wanted him to. I think that he is being he is just doing exactly what um, what the coalition that put him on the court wanted him to do. Uh, and if Kennedy were to retire, uh, then I, I think he would be likely to be replaced by somebody who is a more reliable conservative vote. What one interesting thing is, you know, you do get the I at least get the sense that a lot of uh, a lot of liberals and moderates don't want him to retire this year because they're, you know, they're nervous about the replacement. But I think that actually, if you look at the way the Senate elections are shaping up, you might have a better shot at getting a conservative appointee uh, to replace him confirmed next year than you would this year when you have effectively 50 Republican senators. You've got Susan Collins as one of those 50. Um, you know, I think it would be very tricky uh, in the run-up to an election to replace a swing justice Uh, with a conservative um, under these circumstances. Uh, uh, uh,
2: Mimi, if he retired, how would Chief Justice Roberts' uh, incentives to have this kagan breyer coalition change? Would he just put everything through by five to four or six to three votes?
6: Let me me give myself a second to think about that (laughs) and and go back to the Gorsuch point because I think... Um, one thing that, that I saw recently that I was very troubled by that goes to your point is um, in this um, racial gerrymandering case coming out of Texas, I, I think it was completely wrongly, wrongly decided. The majority really reached out and grabbed this case. I don't think it was properly before them and did not properly, shouldn't have actually grappled with the record, did. There's lots of problems. But Gorsuch j- joins Justice Thomas in going way farther and saying, I don't think the Voting Rights Act applies to redistricting. Now, this is an issue that was decided in 1968 and, and quite frankly, has not really been revisited since then as kind of a a jurisprudential issue. And so I wanted to underscore that as a sign that that, he he is positioning himself much further to the right than Roberts, but, but even in that case than Alito. Um, so if, if we lose Kennedy, you know, let me go ahead and, um, you know, I am, I, am I, I know some folks in the audience who you know me. I, I am actually deeply an optimist. Um, and here's what I will say about Justice Roberts. I believe that he uh, cherishes the institution of the court. And I, I would like to think that that places some limits on what he's willing to do, and, and that he a- at least is kind of savvy enough to understand that the Supreme Court can only go so far given public opinion. I believe that, that firmly. Sorry, <coughs> I believe that firmly, and so you know that that could be our saving grace. Um, I mean, that, that does not give me a lot of comfort, <laughs> but I think you know that, that that you know we have seen some attempts by him to. Um, Forge consensus and hopefully that would not completely disappear.
2: Thank you for that note of optimism Emily, do you share it uh, or do you th- think that if Justice Kennedy retired we would see a vastly different Constitution in court that we have now and if so, what would that Constitution in court look like?
3: Well, I do agree that Chief Justice Roberts is very savvy about how he marshals the court's power and protects its image um, And so I don't think we would see in rapid fire every single area of law transform immediately. Um, But I also think he's canny in a way that in the end does a very... a successful job of protecting the core conservative agenda um, and and um, masking some of its extremity. When you see a Chief Justice Roberts opinion, and the best example I know of this is the Shelby County case that um, essentially gutted the Voting Rights Act, um, a key provision thereof, It sounds very reasonable, his opinion, until you read the dissent, in which moment you feel like he completely cherry-picked the history. There are all these facts he's not dealing with, sort of like your example previously, Ramesh. Um, It becomes much less persuasive. Uh, And so what I imagine in a world of no more Justice Kennedy is um, a world in which the court... Under Roberts picks its targets carefully, but those are targets that really matter. Mm-hmm. And they make it um, easier to restrict the franchise, as we talked about before. They make it much easier for corporate America to operate without fear of lawsuits. We've already seen that in the, arbitration. the um, Federal Arbitration Act case about and the moves away from uh, liberal use of class action lawsuits, which is a whole important body of law that's super boring and wonky, but really matters for employees and consumers and the balance of power between, um, you know, workers and uh, and capital. And today's union decision is another huge um, uh, you know feature in that landscape. So I think what we will see is a court that you know doesn't all of a sudden go down to zero in the public's estimation by doing a bunch of nakedly partisan things, but is tremendously effective. And then I would say, sorry. I have a question for you, but go, go. Well, I just wanna say my last point is, then the key question to me is, do liberals start caring about the Supreme Court the way conservatives have since Roe versus Wade? Because what we've seen for the last, what is that now, 40-something years? I'm not so good at those dates when they cross over the century line. Um, what we've seen what we've seen since then is a world in which conservatives vote on the court how many times what did trump supporters say this year the justices, the judges, we're getting what we want, just as Ramesh said, and that makes the rest of this worth it. Liberals have not voted that way. They have been relatively complacent since Roe. If the court goes too far too quickly, I think liberals will change their minds. But if liberals were smarter about their own agenda, they would care as much right now just as well.
5: To add <laughs> one point on that, the exit polls bear out what, what you just said. of voters, according to the exit poll, cited the Supreme Court as one of the main reasons they voted in the 2016 presidential election, and they broke for Trump over Clinton by 56 to 41%.
6: Thank you. (laughs) Um, My question for you, getting a little less optimistic, is the example – I agree completely with everything you said, except the examples you gave, voting rights, arbitration – I mean – has Kennedy done anything? I mean, I don't think he's restrained Roberts not, right. at all. In right. those yes, examples, he's, totally he's maybe restrained Roberts in the areas of gay rights and um, protecting criminal, the right of abortion and maybe some criminal some cases. Some criminal cases, that's, that's right. I mean, people, that's that's the no, characterization you're right.
4: You're totally of Kennedy right. as a as a liberal, is liberal with respect to yeah. those issues, and that's it. Otherwise, he is actually a reliable oh, conservative. Right. I think that part of the problem here, I think that Roberts will fashion uh, wonky decisions that will come out the right way for him without really changing doctrine very much. Gorsuch is aiming to change doctrine. Gorsuch has an agenda with (laughs) about, you know, statutory interpretation and the role of the agencies that can in fact be profoundly destabilizing. Thomas and Alito never had that power. Scalia had that kind of power. So if Gorsuch winds up being met with another Gorsuch, if that's the conservative that comes on the court, then we are in trouble.
2: Wow. Well, the only job of the chief justice and moderator is to end on time, so I'm, I'm going <laughs> to send you out into the Aspen Sun with this homework assignment. I said that I want you to read a Supreme Court decision uh, that just come down. It could be the travel ban case, it could be the abortion uh, clinics case, or the Carpenter electronic privacy case. Go to supremecourt.gov and download it. They're long. You don't have to read every word. Law students learn to skim. (laughs) I want you to read the majority, the concurrences, and the dissent with an open mind, and then decide which you're most persuaded by on constitutional rather than political grounds. And finally, I need to give you some text to help you make this decision with a plug for the National Constitution Center's invaluable interactive constitution, You can find it in the App Store at Interactive Constitution or online at constitutioncenter.org. We've brought the leading liberal and conservative scholars in America, nominated by the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society, to write about every clause of the Constitution describing what they agree about and what they disagree about. So if you're doing the travel ban case and you want to know about the Establishment Clause, you can click on the First Amendment and see the leading liberal and conservatives with a thousand-word unanimous opinion about the consensus view and then separate statements about what they disagree. It's an astonishing educational resource that has gotten 17 million hits since it launched and that all of you will (laughs) learn from uh, invaluably. This has been a model of a constitutional conversation Uh, I hope that you will take the cool reason that our extraordinarily distinguished panels have embodied with you into the Aspen air, and please join me in thanking our panelists. (laughs)
0: Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Madison Poulter and Scott Bomboy. Special thanks to the Aspen Institute for hosting this conversation. Research was provided by Madison Poulter, Hannah Zinker, Lera Morchina, and Lana Ulrich. The Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Lana Ulrich.